It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Mike Pence served as the 48th Vice President of the United States. He was governor of Indiana. He was a member of the House of Representatives from Indiana. And he is author of the new book, So Help Me, God Mr. Vice President, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much, Guy. It's a great honor to be on, and and thanks thanks for calling attention. I know you know what it's like to write a bestseller. Congratulations on end of discussion, but it's a great privilege for me to to write our story. And so help me God, and I appreciate the chance to chat with you about it. Well, we're happy to have you here, and I have to add to your bio before all of those titles that you accumulated, you were a talk radio host, a conservative talk radio host based in Indiana. One of your famous taglines that you would use all the time was, I'm a conservative, but I'm not in a bad mood about it. Do you think there's too many conservatives these days who are sort of too grumpy about being on the right? Well, I, look, you're uh, – look, I, I, I was in talk radio, never as big as you've arrived. But, um, but yeah, you know what? I, I do think the American people um, – like happy warriors. <laughs> and uh, I think you look around these midterm elections, I think a lot of the people that won those elections, that a lot of the candidates that won us uh, that new Republican majority were out there telling our story, holding the Biden-Harris administration's failed policies accountable, but, uh, but, but conveying that message you convey so well, Guy, that, uh, look, we get back to the policies that we've been advancing in the conservative movement from Reagan to Trump, uh, and we could turn this country around faster than you can imagine. Now, I have to ask you a question. Be honest. When you were a radio host and you were interviewing an author, did you always read every page of every book? I always read a page of the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, same. So I have to confess, I got your book, my copy of So Help Me God, literally today. So I've only just started it. But as I am making my way through it, you have so much to say about your early life, your early career, a lot of very interesting vignettes out of your public service. Obviously, so much of the attention on the book tour and in interviews has been about the last six years and your time with President Trump, then just after the administration, and then perhaps a look toward the future. As you look back, broadly speaking, at your time as vice president and the Trump administration, would you say net-net? that the Trump administration and the Trump presidency was a success? Unquestionably a success. Um, it obviously didn't end well, Guy, and I, I write candidly about that uh, and, uh, and, and speak about the, the reasons both, both why and, and how I, I took the stand that I took on that tragic day in January. But you know, so help me God has been called one of the most fulsome defenses of the Trump-Pence record that's in print to date, and uh, and I'm honored by that. Look, I mean, think about what we accomplished 
in in one term in an administration, the largest investment in our national defense, a new branch of our armed forces, our military crushed the ISIS caliphate, took out the most dangerous terrorists in the world. At home, we cut taxes and regulation, unleashed American energy, created seven million good-paying jobs, way, you know, unemployment at a 50-year low, wages rising at the fastest pace in a decade, uh, and we were energy independent and. We secured our border, reduced illegal immigration by 90 percent, appointed three Supreme Court justices and 300 conservatives to our court. I think the Trump-Pence administration accomplished more in three years than most administrations accomplished in eight. And I will always be proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration. The reason I ask that, and you just ran through a lot of those achievements, is— Before we even get to January 6th, and I actually don't plan to really ask you about it because you've gotten thousands of questions, it seems, on that. You've written about it. My position on what happened that day is crystal clear. But because we all watched what happened on January 6th, we have to remember the reason that there was that uprising or that riot was there was an election just a few months prior. People didn't want to accept, in some cases, the outcome of that election, including the former president. But you guys lost that election, and you just rattled off a really impressive list of accomplishments politically, and yet after just those four years, you lost. And on the same day that your ticket lost to Biden and Harris, Republicans actually gained double-digit seats in the House of Representatives. Given the track record that you've laid out, why is it in your mind that a second term was not secured? Well, I, you know, I would leave that to experts like you, Guy. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy that's been in, in public service, and I've had the privilege to be a candidate. As I recounted, so help me God, my first few campaigns, we lost for Congress. I learned a lot of lessons uh, in my own life about making sure that I was living out my Christian faith in the way I, I carried myself in the public square. Ten years later, I had a chance to run again and, uh, and had the chance to serve as a conservative in the Congress, a uh, serve as governor of Indiana and then as your vice president. And uh, um, but all along the way, I, I, I've been a part of this movement that was really minted uh, with Ronald Reagan. And, uh, uh, and and when I look at the at the 2020 election, I, I just uh, I remember telling the president more than once when I'd returned from campaign rallies, even in the midst of covid restrictions in many states, I said, I think the enthusiasm out there is greater now than it was in 2016. And we got 10 million more votes than we got uh, in 2016. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, after all the legal challenges played out, uh, we came up short. But I don't I don't think in any way uh, that it was a rejection of uh, the agenda. I don't think it was a rejection of our ideals and our values. I just think it, it tells us was that it? going forward. Well, I just look, I as I've said before, I think the American people long for leadership that could unite us uh, around our highest ideals, but also would bring the level of civility and respect that the American people show one another just about every day. You know, having been out of politics for two years, Guy, uh, traveling around the country, going to the grocery store near our house here at Indiana, I, you know, our politics are very divided, but I'm not convinced the American people are as divided as our politics are today. And as people will find out again around the Thanksgiving table, you can get some pretty diverse groups together and still get along. And I, I, 
I honestly think one of the messages of that campaign is the American people would would, would like to see leadership that's about all the things that we were about in the days ahead, but but is looking for ways to to bring our country together, fight for what you believe in, but uh, but show the kind of respect that the American people show each other every day. Mr. Vice President, you know how this works. We're up on a break. We're going to take it real quick. More of this conversation with Mike Pence about his new book, So Help Me God, on the other side. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Welcome back. Thank you very much for listening to The Guy Benson Show on this Thanksgiving week. And I'm honored to have with us here, talking about his new book, So Help Me God, the former vice president of the United States, Mike Pence. And we'll pick up our conversation. Much has been made about your disagreements with President Trump over the election, of course, and the outcome, and then what happened on January 6th and the lead up to all of that, and then sort of this public breakup and what he was doing and tweeting on that day and then ever since, you know, some of the subsequent skirmishes and that kind of thing. But on policy substance, would you say that there's any daylight between you and former President Trump? Well, I got that question this summer at a, I, you know, I've been speaking at college campuses with Young America's Foundation, which is an outstanding group you're well aware of. And Yep. I got a question just like that. And I said, I, look, I, I think we have a difference in focus. Uh, we certainly are different men with different styles, but I, I'm, I, I don't see any daylight in the policies. You know, and the foundation that I created earlier last year really laid out um, all the policies that have defined the conservative movement from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. And, you know, Reagan was, as, as you know, and articulate uh, better than anybody, you know, he was strong national defense, limited government, traditional values. The Bushes both added to that and built on that. Uh, but then Donald Trump added, you know, border security and fair trade and standing up to China to our agenda. And I, I believe that's an agenda that, that it won the Congress this year. I believe we're going to win back America on that same agenda uh, if we'll just carry forward with the kind of leadership that will bring the country together around those principles. So I do just want to ask you one follow-up then, and this is not intended as a gotcha or anything like that, but you said that there wasn't any daylight. President Trump made history and raised some eyebrows by coming out and endorsing effectively, saying that he is supportive of same-sex marriage. Obviously, that is not where you have been in the past. Has your thinking changed on that issue at all, or is there some daylight on that question? No, I think for me as a Bible-believing Christian, I'll always believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Um, but the Supreme Court has ruled on that issue, and, uh, you know, we can disagree with the Supreme Court, but we can't disobey it. And I will tell you that subsequent decisions that the court has made respecting religious freedom have been uh, very heartening to me. You know, in the Oberfell decision, you know, Justice Kennedy actually wrote that the decision itself would raise profound questions around religious freedom, and the court's been sorting through that. And I think that's the most important thing as we go forward. I'm, I'm someone uh, uh, who truly does believe that uh, uh, I'm called as a as a Christian to love my neighbor as myself. People that know the Pences 
and you know the Pences know that we we aspire to that uh, in all of our dealings with people. But uh, my values may not change, but one of those values is is always to treat everyone as I want to be treated. Yeah, and I mentioned this at the time. You were kind to invite me over to the vice presidential residence while you were vice president. We had dinner together with a handful of people, and we talked about some of these issues on same-sex marriage and gay rights and LGBT issues, and you were extremely uh, polite, and we had a cordial, I think, constructive conversation. I think some people find that hard to believe based on some of the ways that you were portrayed. I think a lot of that is unfair, uh, and I think it's important for me to say, hey, look, you know, we had this great conversation over dinner. I think that's important. I think it's also worthwhile and reasonable for me to at least say in the context of this discussion and the question that I asked – you mentioned Obergefell's the law of the land that you might disagree, but we're not going to disobey. Can you understand why there would be some concern among people like me who are in same-sex marriages uh, when there are people on the national stage who might argue that Obergefell should be overturned or that these types of unions should not be legal? What's your response to that when you hear that type of challenge? Well, you know, there's an entire chapter in my book about the experience we had in Indiana. and you, um, I'd, I'd love it if you read So Help Me God, Guy, and it was about our experience to. in the state of it. Thank you. It's our experience in the state of Indiana in the run up to the same sex marriage decision. Indiana, like many other states, was passing Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The media pounced on it immediately, called it a I license remember. to discriminate, which which legal experts even at the time said that it was it was nothing, nothing of the kind. Uh, but we weathered that storm in Indiana. We preserved uh uh, the religious freedom of Hoosiers and their constitutional uh, rights. But, you know, there was a Bible verse that really spoke to me. It's at the lead of that chapter that is actually George Washington's favorite verse, which was that everyone might be able to sit under their own vine and their own fig tree and no one would make them afraid. You know, I think as, as we go forward as Americans, uh, whether we agree or disagree on particular values, I think we ought to ever aspire uh, to show passion and respect to, to every American, whatever your beliefs, whatever your value system, and, and that's how our family will always be. Yep, I think that's well said, and I did read some of the passages from that chapter, including, I think, perhaps you could argue some of the two-faced posturing that we saw from a certain former mayor in your state of Indiana, who's now in the Biden cabinet, uh, who sort of treated you one way in private and you treated him that same way and then for political reasons tried to feed into certain uh, certain stereotypes and certain perceptions of you that I think, again, are not terribly fair in terms of who you are at your core and the way that you treat other people. I want to shift to something more immediate in our recent past. We're not quite through, actually, the 2022 elections yet. We still have a big runoff in Georgia. There are still votes being counted, believe it or not, in California. I wonder, as you look at what happened two weeks ago, is there something that really jumps out at you? You know, for me, it would be the Republicans' great success in Florida, for example, led by Governor Ron DeSantis. What do you think of DeSantis personally and as a leader? And are there any big takeaways that you have from the 2022 midterms? Well, people talk about there wasn't a red wave, but the truth is there was a red wave in in many states around the country and in many congressional districts. It just wasn't the national way we were looking for. And you need look no further than uh, the re-election of Governor DeSantis, the re-election of Governor Kemp uh, in Georgia, Governor Abbott in Texas. These were decisive victories 
in Governor Kemp's case, he was up against probably the most formidable Democrat in the country. Stacey Abrams raised $100 million and was being talked about as a candidate for president. Uh, and he defeated her handily in the fall. And, and my own favorite is that Lee Zeldin, who came up short in uh, the governor's race in New York, guy, he still brought with him, while he was not elected, he he elected four new Republicans, could well be the margin of the Republican majority, That's four right. new Republican congressmen from New York. And it was really an extraordinary campaign that he ran. So, But when I look at it, I honestly believe that the common denominator in 2022 is that candidates that were focused on the future, candidates were focused on the issues that the American people are struggling with, people here in Indiana are struggling with, which is, you know, 40-year high inflation, gas prices, crime in our major cities, and the worst border crisis and a fentanyl crisis to boot that's that's besetting our nation. People that focused on the future and on solutions to those challenges did well. But candidates that were focused on the past, particularly those that were focused on relitigating the last election, did not fare as well. And so it, to me, as I said when I campaigned for Governor Brian Kemp the night before his primary victory, which in many ways was uh, debated along the fault lines of this very distinction guy, yep. I yep. said the Republican Party must be the party of the future. And I think the midterm elections confirm that. We focus on the future. We focus on that agenda that Trump-Pence administration champion that you've been such a tremendous advocate for on the airwaves of America and in the Britain word. Uh, and we'll, we'll win back the Senate, we'll win back state houses, and uh, we'll win back America in 2024. Well, on the subject of 2024, now that you mention it, I have some questions. We'll get to those right after this with former Vice President Mike Pence on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour. Thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. 5 to 6 hour is our happy hour, which is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free shortly after the conclusion of every show. Totally no charge, on demand for all of you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. We have with us here the former vice president of the United States under the Trump administration, Mike Pence. He is out with a new book, a memoir, entitled So Help Me God. And Mr. Vice President, right before the break, you did invoke 2024. Speaking of that, I know that you've been asked many different ways if you're going to run for president in 2024. You've sort of hinted that you think that there will be better options out there in 24 for Republican voters in the primary compared to President Trump, who's already announced. If you want to make some huge news here, we would be delighted for you to do that. Uh, If not, let me ask you a different question, sort of a different way. 
as you consider the question, if you're considering it, what would a timeline and process look like for you on making a big decision like that? Yeah, that's fair. Well, first, let me say I'm always humbled to be asked, for heaven's sakes. I'm a, as you'll read in So Help Me God, I'm a small-town guy, southern Indiana, that grew up with a cornfield in my backyard. My, my dad ran gas stations for a living, and the idea that I had the opportunity to serve in Congress, to serve as governor of the state that I love, and serve as your vice president has been an incredible honor, let alone people asking me about about uh, the highest office in the lands. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always honored to be asked. And, and let me just say, you know, for us, it, w- it will really come down to, uh, uh, you know, what what our hearts and our family and what we sense the American people would have us to do. I, years ago, Guy, a, a, a mentor of mine said, there's two kinds of people in Washington, D.C., people that are driven and people that are called. And if you read So Help Me God, you'll you'll I was both. I mean, I those early campaigns, I allowed my ambition to overrun my values and the standards that my faith requires of me in dealing with others. But ever since we were elected to Congress, we've always aspired to be called. Um, you know, when we packed up our kids and sold our dream home and ran for Congress, spent all of our savings, you know, it was out of a deep sense of calling. Same with governor, same when we joined the national ticket, without hesitation. And so we're going to take some time over this Christmas. Our kids, we have two in the active duty military, so we haven't been together for three years. We'll all be home in Indiana together. We're going to spend some time talking to our kids. Karen and I will spend time in deliberation and prayer. We'll be talking to friends around the country. And I expect sometime after the turn of the year, we'll uh, we'll have a good sense of uh, where we might next contribute but okay uh, you know whether whether i'm a candidate or whether uh, uh i'm just uh, one more voice like you in the cause i'm never going to stop fighting uh for the conservative agenda in this country and i do believe that that as we continue to all of us do our part that the best days for this country are yet to come well i think that's fair enough and i know we have thanksgiving coming up in just a few days the fact that you all will be back together as a family is I'm sure something that you are particularly thankful for this year. Uh, Mike Pence, former vice president of the United States, former governor of Indiana, former member of the House of Representatives. He is author of this brand new book, So Help Me God. And Mr. Vice President, we so appreciate your time here today and a very happy Thanksgiving to you and Karen and your entire family from us. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, Guy, and to your family and to all of your great listeners. It is, uh, we have so much to be thankful for, even in challenging times. And I wish you every continued success. Well, blessings to you. Thank you very much. Former Vice President Mike Pence on The Guy Benson Show, where our online home is GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts if you missed any of that conversation that we just had with former Vice President Mike Pence. When we come back, it's the home stretch. Should be an interesting one because producer Christine is once again aggrieved with her mother, Judgy Joyce. Why is this? I will sit back. I will play mediator, perhaps. I'll offer some advice. We'll see what the problem seems to be with producer Christine when we come back right after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
On the Guy Benson Show, I'm a very excited person because I'm such a Thanksgiving fan, as you're aware. And one thing that I give thanks for every year, these last few years, is our free podcast, which I hear about so often from so many of you who check it out on demand every day, no charge. We do appreciate that. GuyBensonShow.com, our online source for all of our content, including that podcast. Tune in tonight. I'll be on special report with Brett Bayer on the panel right around 645 Eastern time. That's on Fox News Channel. And at least for now, you never know with live TV, but I'm scheduled to be on America's Newsroom in the morning sometime in the 9 a.m. Eastern hour with Bill and Dana or whoever's filling in on America's Newsroom, also on Fox News Channel. So hope to see you this evening and again tomorrow on the tube. Meanwhile, here at the show, producer Christine has a bone to pick, again, with her mother, Judgey Joyce. And I've sort of been partially briefed on what happened, but I haven't gotten all the details exactly. So, Christine, you are miffed with mom, and you recently have been in the process of breaking up with your therapist because he no longer takes your insurance, so it's too expensive. So I am once again thrust into the role of unlicensed, uncompensated, and sometimes unwilling therapist for you. And it seems like this is something that we can work through together. So please explain what has happened here. Okay, let me paint you a little picture. Uh, Let's flash back to Thanksgiving of 2021. Uh, Christine and Bobby hosted. It was our final Thanksgiving in the home. We had just announced that we were selling the house and we wanted one big last hurrah. So Bobby's family comes from Boston. My family comes from Philadelphia, Long Island, New Jersey. We have a nice Thanksgiving. But the one thing that we had told everybody before they sat down for the bird was there was going to be no bird. We were doing right. We were doing a prime rib instead of turkey. I believed we talked about this a lot. We did. I had forgotten, Christine. There are so many things that I (laughs) – they they come in and out of my mind. I had forgotten this one. You hosted Thanksgiving and did not offer turkey on Thanksgiving as an alleged American in the United States of America. And you instead created some sort of delicious roast beast, which is fine – but not even a turkey offering on Thanksgiving. This is all coming back to me now. And I was, of course, strongly opposed to this plan. It was sacrilegious, frankly, for this secular American holiday. And yet you decided to move forward with that, I think, ill-advised decision anyway, as you so often do, despite my good advice. Okay, so then what was, like, the reaction? So nobody really said much to us. My in-laws loved it. Like, they were so gung-ho. My mother... I should have known better because sometimes my mom, usually my mom voices her opinion and she lets everybody know, but sometimes she holds back. I should have known when she was like really silent on this, that this was actually a problem. So Mm -hmm. flash forward to this year, we are now in an apartment, so we cannot host Thanksgiving, you know, for like 15, 20 people. So my mother is hosting and my in-laws again are coming down. Family from Long Island, family from Pennsylvania, you know, the whole crew. Now, my mother, my sister must have taught her recently how to use group texting because my mom did not know how to do any of this. She's kind of like me with the technology. Yeah, I can Um, see where that comes from. (laughs) So my sister... Does she have a remote control on her television? Does she still get up and, like, literally change the channel manually? 
So her remote, actually, it's funny you say that because we went to visit her on Saturday night and we were trying to watch Home Alone and I said, Mom, I can't hear the TV. And she gets up and she's like, yeah, I don't know where the volume button is. And my husband's like, Joyce, it's on the remote. The remote wasn't working and she she couldn't figure it out. Mm -hmm. So now, thank God, hopefully she's not listening. We're going to get her a nice TV for Christmas. But anyway. Mother like daughter. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Got it. So, okay. Continue with the story. She's going to be hosting. She's going to be hosting. So now my sister must have taught her recently how to, you know, like, you know, on, like you have family group chats on your, yeah, you know, we have a, we have a group chat. So my mom decided, <laughs> I don't think she understood like group chat, uh, as opposed to like an email or evite. So she puts, I don't know how many people on this, uh, text message, everybody that's invited to Thanksgiving dinner. And she's like, hi everyone. You know, <laughs> she writes, this is Joyce. It's like, Okay. <laughs> We know who you are. You're our family. And she's like, um, you know, we're look I'm looking forward to hosting. Please arrive at two PM. You all have been given like what to bring. And then she wrote in parentheses to everybody, and don't worry, this year there'll be a proper turkey. <laughs> yes. Yes. See, I don't think that she didn't know what she was doing. I think she knew full well that she was publicly shaming you to everyone involved. By saying we're going to have a turkey because it's freaking Thanksgiving in the United States. We're going to have that offering at our house this year. Don't you worry. I think that was a very clear, not even like a subtle jab. That was a roundhouse for all the attendees to see. And I am absolutely on board. I am so upset. My husband and I, you know, Bobby, he doesn't really care that much. But he knew I was going to be mad. So he called me. He's like, oh, no. Did Judgy just ruin your Thanksgiving? And I'm, I actually have no, not said. No, no, she, she has, no, she has improved Thanksgiving. She has saved Thanksgiving, unlike last year, by having an actual Thanksgiving meal. She hasn't ruined anything. She has restored order to what Thanksgiving ought to be. She's doing a great service to everyone. Don't you think that's a? I'm her daughter. Like, don't you think that's a little mean? I mean, I don't know if you know no. this about me, guy, but I tend to be sometimes a little sensitive. If you're sensitive and you're having a bunch of people come to your house for Thanksgiving, you at least provide them with turkey or brace for the backlash. And you're getting the backlash. It took a year. Obviously, a lot of people were sort of stewing on this for a year, perhaps listening to the show, listening to me being right about this. And they decided that when the timing was right, unlike a delicious roast turkey, revenge is a dish best served cold. And a full year later, you got I think what was coming to you from Judgy Joyce, who's just a plain spoken Jersey gal. Well, and the, one more thing. She calls okay. my husband because she's <laughs> doling out like what to tell everybody to bring. So she calls my husband because Bobby's a really good cook. And she's like, oh, Bobby, like, could you just make two sides? You know, maybe like your cream corn casserole and green bean casserole, which I can't stand green bean casserole. So I'm trying to oh, convince Bobby not to make again, it. Wrong again. It's the most important side dish at Thanksgiving and my favorite. You know, you know what's so funny? I am like the one person. I don't like those crunchies on top. You know the ones They're that are essential. Can? The oh, whole thing is essential. I, the green beans, know. the cream and mushroom soup, the little crunchy onion things on top. It is the mm-hmm. most delicious thing. I eat those as leftovers for like a week and a half so enthusiastically. Mm-mm, I don't like. I'm trying to convince him to make some sort of like really good homemade mac and cheese. But no, I know my mother no, no. did not go like she's not going to go for that. She made a request, unless you want an even more, like, you know, blow up on your phone with some subtexts or subtweets, if you will, in the group text. She has made her correct 
request very clear, and I think you should go along with that because other people, including your mother, obviously, have much better taste in these things than you. So no persuading Bobby to go off script again. You did that last year. There was obviously a big problem that brewed for a year. No one said a word. And on top of this, I asked Someone finally did. I mean, I said many words. Let the record reflect that I said many words on this show about the necessity of Turkey. Obviously, people disagreed, namely you. Many others agreed, including your mother. And I guarantee you she's speaking for others here. Like the don't worry thing is not really directed so much at you as it is at everyone else who wanted a proper turkey at their Thanksgiving meal. So she she clung on to that disappointment. And I'm saying I think that it was a mistake. We can all move past last year's mistake, but don't compound the mistake by taking your incorrect opinion on green bean casserole and imposing it on the dinner party for Thanksgiving because that is a must-have, in my opinion. And Wyatt is nodding along, by the way, on that as well. So we're just saying, Christine, just like let bygones <laughs> be bygones. Don't make the problem worse. That's what I tend to do. Why do you think I'm in therapy? That's what I I do. But I'm trying once again to help. I'm trying to help avoid making problems worse because it's one day. This is the other thing that drives me crazy sometimes about folks who want to get totally weird and outside the box on their Thanksgiving dinner. If you don't like the traditional Thanksgiving feast, you have 364 days a year to cook anything else. Your roast beef or whatever it was, your mac and cheese. I know mac and cheese is a big part of Thanksgiving for a lot of people, especially in the South. But you can go rogue and be super creative whenever you want. You can even do a Thanksgiving meal tweaked in the middle of March for some reason if you want to. But as a traditionalist, especially around this holiday, for the love of God, just leave the traditional feast alone It is perfect for one day a year, and if it's not your favorite, you can suck it up for one day and let the rest of us actually enjoy it. Does that make sense? I guess so. I'll try. I'll think about it a little more. But, you know, also, I called her and said, Mom, what can I make? You asked Bobby to make things. Do you want me to bake something? Do you want me to cook something? And she goes, oh, I don't know, Chris. Just roll up some hot dogs and bring them. (laughs) That's all she thinks I can handle. (laughs) Like like pigs in a blanket? Yes. (laughs) I mean, those are good, and someone has to make them. You can just buy the frozen ones probably and heat them up in the oven. And you can be like, look what I did, Ma. And then she'll be proud of you, and she'll have a turkey this time, so everything will be fine. You can also make Cosmos. How about that? She doesn't drink, but I do. Oh, that's right. Oh, don't worry. There'll There'll be plenty. Plenty of booze there. So what is your favorite side dish for Thanksgiving? Because I was tweeting a little bit about this last night, and I know you saw my preferences. We know your incorrect opinions already. Can you maybe redeem yourself a little bit with this answer, your favorite Thanksgiving dish? And follow-up question, if you had to choose either gravy or cranberry sauce, you could only have one, which one would you choose? Oh, I'd probably – oh, no, you can't – I guess gravy, because if I'm going to have to have that turkey, i got to pour a lot of gravy on it. Mm. So I guess gravy I'll is take... a def- I, I would probably say cranberry sauce, but especially our homemade version of it. But gravy is a defensible answer here. I'll allow it. And then your favorite side? 
I would say stuffing would probably have to be my favorite side. My grandparents made like the Italian stuffing, like with like sausage in it and stuff. Oh, mm, it was delicious. That's, good. No, that's really oh, good. So okay, that's good. a that's a good answer. I probably have a different answer. I mean, you know, green bean casserole is at the very top for me. Wyatt, do you have a favorite side dish? Yes, green bean casserole. Green bean casserole, excellent, Wyatt. Well done as usual. Dan, what about you? Mashed potatoes all the way. Mashed potatoes and gravy yeah. and peas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, pe- oh, peas. Yeah, you make a little volcano, like a little hole in the mashed potatoes, and you put the peas in, and then you put the gravy like lava. We have a six-year-old running the board here at the Guy Benson <laughs> Show, apparently. We, we just discovered that. But mashed potatoes, also very solid. But the good news is you don't need to have just one. You don't need to have just a favorite. To me, it's the whole thing. The whole thing, and it's Thursday, it's so soon, and then we can finally start talking about Christmas, eventually. Not just yet. Catch me tonight, special report, tomorrow, America's Newsroom. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. Powerful city in the world. A new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. We welcome for the very first time onto the Guy Benson Show someone that we've talked about quite a lot because he takes slings and arrows from the left, from the news media, from the Democratic Party, that whole coalition seemingly every hour of every day. And we've defended him when we think he's right, when he's being treated unfairly. But he is perfectly capable, of course, of defending himself, which is how he has built the approval rating and the standing that he has here in Florida, now with a national profile as well. Earlier this afternoon, I went to the governor's mansion for a one-on-one sit-down at the governor's desk. We had a lot to discuss, and boy, did we. Here's my conversation with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. We are here at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, Florida. I am delighted to welcome to the show Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican here in the Sunshine State. And some big breaking news today, your administration is suing the Biden administration over these continued mask rules on airplanes, for example. Talk about the thought process behind this and Florida's standing in this lawsuit. Sure. Well, first, welcome to the governor's mansion. Good to have you you here. So, you know, this is a, a matter of principle. They, they extended into April for no good reason. You have Fauci out there saying restrictions could re- be reimposed. And so some people say, well, he may just let it go out in April, but I think they could definitely bring it back. So the issue is, is this an overstep of government authority or not? And so our attorney general's done a great job. You know, she filed the lawsuit today. And so we're standing behind that. I'm surprised that courts haven't, upheld, uh, haven't struck it down by now. But clearly at this point, I don't even think it has a rational basis uh, given where, where we are as a society. So um, I think we've been leading on pushing back against Biden's overreach on all fronts, you know, not just this, the vax mandates, the border, all those things. And I think that's what people want to see, because I think Biden is really out of control. He's clearly not in command uh, of, of the White House and um, and he's expanding government in ways that I think will be dangerous. So you won the governor's mansion in 2018. It was a blue wave year. You squeaked through at 0.4 percent that victory margin. And at the time, registered Democrats in this state 
outnumbered Republicans by hundreds of thousands. Almost 300,000. That has changed dramatically, and there was news today on that front. This is like a sea change, one might call it, in Florida. Tell us about this. Sure. So we were down almost 300,000 in 2018 when I got elected. Today we can announce that Florida Republicans now outnumber Democrats by over 100,000 registrants. So you're looking at close to a 400,000 registration swing. And the thing is, is I thought we could catch them by my election at the end of this year in November. We caught them in November of 2021. And so then I'm like, man, maybe we'll be 50 to 100,000 up by the election. We're already 100. So at this pace, we could be 200 to 250,000 registrants ahead. And I think here's, here's why it matters for elections in Florida. Midterm elections, for sure, but even presidential. Registered Republicans turn out at higher rates than registered Democrats. And then a Republican like me, I'm going to get a higher percentage of registered Republicans than the Democrat will get of registered Democrats. You know, we still have legacy Democrats who are, who are pretty conservative. And so um, functionally, it used to be Democrats outnumbered us. We had a turnout advantage, and then you'd kind of fight in the middle. That was why Florida was really a swing state. Well, now we have a, we're building a big registration advantage and the turnout advantage. And then I think this well, and is you're gonna, leading among independents as well. Exactly. This is going to be a red year. So I think obviously I will. I think I'll win independents big because of the job we did of governor. But I think all Republicans are going to win independents because I think they're rebelling against Brandon, and I think that they're going to want to basically show their frustration and vote for Republicans. What counts as a blowout in this state? Six points? Oh, who knows? I mean, you know, look, I think it's Florida's a tough tough state. It's always a tough state to kind of get your fit because there's so many moving parts. And we've always been a transient state. But I think now being able to capture such a rapid change, and it is an ideological migration that is skewing very heavily to Republicans. Like we don't really know. So we don't really know what the electorate's going to look like. I, my guess would be whatever kind of the public polling is going into the election, you can add a couple points to the Republicans' total mind. And I think other Republicans, because I think it's going to be hard for them to capture uh, what all these new registrants mean in terms of the turnout and all the things that go into modeling an electorate. Because sometimes you hear Republicans and conservatives worry about people leaving Illinois and California, New York and New Jersey, moving to other places and then voting the same way and turning places like Arizona purple, Colorado blue. Sounds like the opposite effect is happening here. This is getting redder in Florida. I think so. And I think part of it is we've always had lower taxes. So we've always had migration from that. The Northeasterners would come, you know, a lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans. The Midwesterners are generally uh, pretty conservative. But then with COVID, you had people that were fleeing COVID lockdowns. They had had enough on that. And then you had the Floyd riots and the defund the police. And a lot of families were like, look, I need to live in a state that's a law and order state. So the number of people I run into from like Washington State or Minnesota, who say one of the breaking points for them was the fact that crime was going through the roof. And here I am. I was like one of the only governors backing law enforcement even in the summer of 2020. So I think there's a number of factors. And then, quite frankly, the media has helped us with this because the corporate press will always try to paint Florida as like the worst place ever. The only people that works with are the, are the leftists who actually believe the corporate narratives. Nobody else in America believes it anymore, especially conservatives. So a conservative in, in, in Wisconsin is going to say, oh, well, hell, CNN's attacking the governor of Florida. He must be doing a good job. And then they are more interested in visiting and ultimately moving it's here. It's like in-kind contributions it's absolutely. from the mainstream media every day with you. Now, you mentioned Fauci a few minutes ago. And one of the mottos or catchphrases that you have here that conservatives like, don't Fauci my Florida. A lot of those same conservatives think – Please do Florida, my America. <laughs> is this state, is your leadership in this state a model, do you think, for other Republicans around the country at the state level and maybe nationally? 
Well, I, I certainly think we've been willing to lead with purpose and conviction without worrying about whether it was safe to lead or not. Like, I have not conducted a single poll since I've been governor. I just do what I think is right. Focus and, groups? Never, never, not once. Now, I'm going to have to start polling the horse race when I get into the, the election. But, like, but on governing decisions, you're not polling? I have not, not, I've not done a single poll. So how do you make these decisions? Then? I make them based off the facts, the data, and my convictions. And my view is, like, you know, if I polled you and, like, 10 of your friends on an issue, that's a static analysis. That doesn't tell me that if I set a vision and I execute the vision, then where will you guys come out? So I can like move people. Like you moving – I'm moving people. I'm showing them that this is how a state should be governed. So I think what we've been willing to do is, you know, we do not let corporate media trim our sales. We're willing to stand up against woke corporations, which, quite frankly, a lot of Republicans uh, have been more corporate Republicans that defer to some of these corporations. Look, I, I want a limited government. I want a free enterprise economy. But when these big corporations are using their economic power to try to impose leftist ideologies, like in my state, we fight back on that. Um, and then I think we've been strong at fighting back against Biden. So I think there's a lot of those things. It's also interesting, you know, we just had a cabinet meeting today, so we had a report about Florida's finances. You know, we have uh, we have $18 billion in debt. We've reduced the debt uh, by probably 20, 25% since I've been governor. So out of a $110, 105000000000 billion budget annually, our debt is only – 18 billion. You contrast that with the federal government. You know, Biden just put out a 5.8 trillion dollar budget, but there's 30 trillion right. in debt. And so I think we've shown we have the lowest per capita tax burden in the country. Um, we have no state income tax, but uh, we meet all the needs. I just did a big increase of pay for teachers, the biggest in Florida history. We gave $1,000 bonuses to all cops and firefighters for the second year in a row. We're doing a lot for our water resources to help our fishermen, our boaters, and our everglades. So we're meeting the challenges that we have because we're really creating a virtuous cycle. Good economic conditions attract more people. We expand the economic base, whereas these blue states, I think they create a vicious cycle. They tax and regulate, so they repel people to leave their state. The base shrinks, so they got to do it again mm -hmm. to try to square the circle, and you just can't have it. So states like Illinois and New York, they are in a, in a tailspin, and they're not probably going to be willing to change their policies, but they would have well, to change the policies. Also had their schools closed for more than a year in those yeah. places. You made a decision last school year to bring the schools back open. Was that the most consequential decision you've made as governor so far? I think ultimately it will be because when I did this, it was like June of 2020, and the data was very clear, just to be honest. I mean, it wasn't a difficult decision right. in terms Actual of substance. Science. Yeah, if you looked at the science, if you looked at places in Europe that had had schools open, if you looked at the fact that kids were at such low risk of COVID and really weren't prime drivers of transmission, there was no basis to say kids should not be in school. So substantively, if you followed the data, that's where you would have come out. However, politically and with the media, I mean, they thought this was the worst thing ever. A lot of parents were scared because CNN is telling them, you know, little Johnny may end up dying of COVID if he goes to first grade. So we, we had a plan. We executed it. I got a diverse state. I've got a lot of liberal school districts. I mean, most of them are conservative, but I got some. We got all the school districts on board. We structured it in a way that incentivized them to have five days a week. We gave parents the right initially to say, look, if you're more comfortable with remote, you can do it. But that's the parent's choice. The school can't lock the kid out. And so having the kids in, letting them play sports, letting them do activities, letting them do all that, um, had we not done that, uh, the problems that would have developed, I think, would have been problems that we would be seen by now. But there are problems that if you and I talk five years from now, we would be seeing those problems. So we were able to really stand for the people who didn't have much of a voice. Uh, and I think 
we, I mean, there's a lot of decisions we've been vindicated on, but that one, I was opposed. This teachers union sued me. We beat them. All the Democrats were opposed. The media's opposed. No one will admit that they oppose me to this day. They will all act like they supported having the schools open. So that tells you when you're right. One of your critics is a fellow governor. I saw a recent interview with Gavin Newsom out in California, and he went out of his way in an interview to come after you. He said that you're a performance artist. He said, quote, I do not look for inspiration to that particular governor, not on the pandemic, not on other policy, including the absurdity that was his woke initiative and the laughability around stopping something that doesn't exist, critical race theory. That's his quote. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's attacking you. What's your response to that from Newsom? Well, first I would say, how many people are moving from his state fleeing to come to mine for freedom versus vice versa? And I guarantee you, we win in the net in migration. People are leaving California in numbers we've never seen because of his failed policies. And here's what I'd say about the pandemic. If you look at um, you know, the, the COVID mortality, people point out California has less per capita mortality than Florida, which is true. They're also the second youngest state. So if you adjust by age, we're one of the oldest states. We're very similar. However, this is where I think his leadership has been terrible. If you look at excess mortality, California's had a higher percentage of excess mortality since COVID started than Florida. So that includes COVID, but it's not limited. So what Is are those? That lockdown deaths? Those are lockdown deaths. Absolutely. Those are deaths that his policies have caused, driving people to despair, drug addiction, lack of opportunities. And so um, there's people vote with their feet. You know, you, you hear a lot of people like him. How many other governors have said the same thing he does? Then they end up down in Palm Beach or Miami the first chance they get. You know, you have these The con- DGA, the Democratic Governors they Association, all come. So had the, their event here. So what I like to say is people posture politically and they do these talking points, but how they actually act really tells the story. And when people vote with their feet, yes, there's a lot of Californians who like what we're doing who are coming, but even the ones that posture against Florida typically find their way here. And so I think that uh, the proof's in the pudding when it comes to that. The slings and arrows from Democratic politicians, from the national media, from the White House. I mean, you have been called out from the podium by the president himself. My conclusion is they see you as a threat to their power. Are they right to see you as a threat nationally? Well, look, I mean, I think if you look at what we've done to fight back against uh, Brandon so far, you know, we succeed. I mean, the, 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 diff- the contrast between a doddering, uh, you know, quasi-senile president who has to have his press team clean up his remarks after every time he opens his mouth versus somebody like me who's out there. I'm very direct. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. I lead and I get things done. You know, they understand that people view Florida as really being the leader of our country in many respects. We're really leading the free world in many. I mean, I have people from Canada that will come here that will write into me, Australia, Europe, and they say we look to Florida as the new citadel of freedom. They're not looking to Joe Biden for that because they know that he's just not not capable of producing the type of leadership that they do. But I absolutely think from the time COVID hit, you know, I think the media wanted to they wanted to use it to defeat Trump in 2020, you know, but they've tried to use it um, against me in any way they can. And then now that we're on to other issues, uh, they're always trying to find a way to attack me and attack Florida. Um, and I do think it's because I'm able to expose them. I'm able to show people that the emperor has no clothes. And they're not used to that. I mean, they're used to Republicans that will roll over for the left. And I just don't do that. I stand my ground. And we will pick up on that exact theme when we come back. My exclusive one-on-one discussion with Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida at the governor's mansion continues after this break. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson.
From Tallahassee, Florida, it's The Guy Benson Show. We now continue with my conversation with Governor Ron DeSantis. So let's talk about something that you did yesterday in the state. You signed into law this parental rights and education bill. It was hugely controversial in the media. It got a lot of national attention. I have had so many people bombarding me about this because I'm gay, I'm conservative, and I'm not subtle about the fact that overall I support what you've been doing down here in Florida. So, of course, we're going to talk about this. Just so you know where I'm coming from, the audience knows already. I've written about it. I've talked about it. I actually read the bill, a novel concept, seven pages, pretty easy. I think that the moniker don't say gay is a misnomer. It is biased and lazy for the media to adopt it. It's an activist slogan that does not reflect what's actually in the law, number one. Number two, that K through three provision that you talk about all the time, I think it's unobjectionable. I think it's common sense, and the polls are bearing that out. People, parents, Americans, Floridians support it. I do as well. I have two concerns about the law, and I'm just curious to get your responses to them. Number one, when you get past the K through three verbiage, literally in that same sentence, it also bars classroom instruction on these types of issues, sexual identity, gender identity, that are, quote, not age-appropriate or developmentally appropriate at other grade levels. That language strikes me as vague and subjective. Who gets to decide what is age-appropriate later on? Like, in your mind, when would it become appropriate? Middle school, high school? So it'll be, it'll, it'll be a combination between the State Board of Education and the local school boards. Um, and I think that you may see, uh, you know, some parts of the state, you know, come to a little bit different conclusions depending on, you know, the years on some of that stuff. Uh, but, look, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that the, the reason this became an issue because when this first became an issue, you know, I wasn't even aware of some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, but, but, but with this transgender and the gender identity, there is an, an effort to try to tell people, well, you know, you may not really be a boy. You may be a girl. And I think that's totally inappropriate in the school system. I mean, you know, um, we need to focus on the normal things. And so I think that's really the genesis of this. We had a lady yesterday who uh, talked about her experience. Now, her daughter was a little older. Her daughter was in middle school here in Leon County. And she was in school, and the school administrators took it upon themselves to, quote, transition her to a boy. They even gave her a boy's name. They never got the parents' consent, and they never got the parents' permission. So the curriculum issue, I think, is something that is important. Um, you know, one, I showed the thing of the gender-bred man they created where they're trying to say, oh, you know, not really a boy, not really a girl. Um, but the, and that's clearly designed for younger kids. Very younger kids. But I think that the, 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 the issue that I think is, is, a, is what role does the parent have? I mean, if a school is doing something as drastic as trying to change somebody's view of their own gender, does the parent not have a right to know that that's going on in school? Right, it's, and, I mean, it's a fair question and it's a fair point. We're up on a break, but that exchange wasn't over. We'll play the rest of it on the other side of this break, plus much more to get to, and we will do so next with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Tallahassee, Florida, where earlier today I spoke with Governor Ron DeSantis at length in his office. When we left off, he and I were chatting about the controversial parental rights and education bill that he signed into law just yesterday. Our back and forth was substantive, it was respectful, and it wasn't done. Here's the rest of it before we move on to a variety of additional topics as well. Listen. The second 
concern that I had about it is because I read these paragraphs in the law several times trying to make heads or tails of it. I talked to a couple lawyers, conservative and liberal, and they said, depending on these could maybe be decided by lawsuits, but depending on how you read and apply some of this stuff, could it be interpreted as a requirement for schools? Let's say a high school student is struggling with coming out, and he decides to confide in a trusted teacher, a trusted counselor, let's say, say, hey, I'm struggling, I'm not sure what to make of this, I don't want to tell my parents yet, would the school then have to disclose that confidential conversation to a family? Is that a legitimate concern under this law? Because having gone through the process myself, it's, it's hard, right? And having those discussions in confidence with someone that you can trust without it necessarily being required to go somewhere is vital for young LGBT people. And my concern is if they feel like this law would require, Florida would require schools to, based on the mental well-being or the emotional well-being, which is how it's written in the law, it's kind of vague, if they're going to be required to tell families, those conversations might get bottled up. They may not happen, and that could be harmful. I'm just curious your perspective right. on so, that. So, uh, for, so for one, the um, before you get to that point, uh, classroom instruction, sometimes people say, like, can you even say something in class? That's not what it is. It's what's the curriculum on that part. Instruction. Second, yeah, yeah. Second part of that is it needs to be some type of service that's provided to, in terms of a medical uh, service. And so, you know, when you're dealing with things like in California, you know, they had a girl who the school was administering hormones to, and she was depressed and they should have treated the depression. They were trying to give her hormones. So she ended up committing suicide. The wife is, is or the, the mother's now suing. So I think it's if they're doing something that is just like if you took your kid to a doctor. You so know, it's treatment, not a conversation. Right, exactly. Okay, I, I, think that, I, a, I think there needs to be some service that's rendered in terms of a medical service that's that a would, very important where, where a parent would have clearly the right to be informed and to, to object. And just think about it. I mean, bef before all this, like people have conversations all the time. I mean, that's never really been the issue that's triggered this. I think the issue that's triggered this is you have kids that are going in and they're now being changed in terms of their their gender identity. They're they're being told, and it's it's odd because the so, people so just to clarify, if, if a high school student came to his teacher that he really trusts, had him for several years, and said, "Hey, I'm having this issue. I might be gay. I'm not really sure." It is not your position that under this law that conversation would need not to be. Not unless they're getting a medical service. Okay. Now, you mentioned woke corporations a short while back. Let's talk about Disney because it's a huge employer in this state. People associate Disney with Florida for all the obvious reasons. I think I made my pilgrimage in fifth grade down to Orlando. I saw the statement that they put out yesterday, ripping the bill, ripping you indirectly for signing into law, saying that they're going to be uh, fighting to take it off the books moving forward. Did you have conversations with the higher-ups at Disney about this on the substance, and did they communicate to you whether they, let's say, oppose that K-3 through component? Because this is a company that caters to overwhelmingly parents and young children. Are they against the K-3 through thing that the majority of the American people support? So, so here's, I think, why this statement was totally outrageous. I mean, for two reasons. One, they said it should have never been passed in the first place. I talked to our Speaker of the House after that statement came out. He said they never contacted him while they were working, while, they, while I was moving through the House of Representatives in Florida. They didn't say anything about it. I mean, they could have called them and said that they had problems with it. They didn't do it. And so to say it should have never been law in the first place, they were not even engaged at those critical processes. And so they're responding 
to, I would say, left-wing activists and their view of it rather than the actual substance of it. Secondly, for them to say that they're going to work to repeal substantive rights of parents, because it's one thing if you're taking a political position about, you know, don't say gay, you know, you can't say the word. We know that's not in the bill, but they would, not even close. They would, they would uh, be targeting provisions that provide parents substantive protections. And so I think they overstepped their bounds with that statement. They do not run this state. I'm not going to let our state be hijacked by a bunch of California corporate executives. And the fact of the matter is, I think they think that they, whatever they want in Florida, they get. That may have been true in the past. That is not true now. Um, and we're going to govern this state based on the best interests of the people of Florida, not what any corporation, uh, but particularly that corporation, is demanding. Got to ask you this, too. You must be probably prodded and prompted every day by someone asking about your ambitions beyond 2022. And I know that the goal of you and your campaign right now is to win a big reelection in Florida. You seem to be on track to do that. I'm not going to ask you, look, if you want to announce you're running for president, <laughs> by all means, do it right here, right now. I'm not going to ask you that question directly. I'm going to ask you this instead. When you hear that buzz directly or indirectly, how does that play into your thinking? Do you just kind of like put it in a box and set it aside till next year or something? Is it something that, you know, sometimes you, you daydream about? What's your thought process? Because no one ever asked me to run for president, so I don't know how I would think about it. But if people were asking me all the time, I don't know how I would manage that internally. I'm just curious how you do. Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is, um, you know, people have this merchandise with like 24. It's not my merchandise. Just so you know, that's totally organic. Okay. They're doing it. <laughs> people will come up to me with this on and they will talk about 2024. The number one response I have to them in Florida is, you know, I'm running in 2022. Right. And honestly, some of them don't. Um, and so we're going to make sure we educate everyone you know, that we've got a really important election, you know, in 2022. But here's the thing. I've never been to Iowa in my life. I've never been to New Hampshire. I think I may have been there in my 20s. Um, I'm just doing my job. And so I'm not doing anything differently uh, than I would do, whether people were buzzing about me or not. Um, I'm trying to do the best I can for the people I represent. I'm fulfilling my campaign promises, and I'm willing to make tough decisions and lead. And so that has caused people uh, to recognize me and view me uh, as a leader. But it's not because I'm out there uh, parading around or doing anything of that. So, so I appreciate when people look. I mean, I'll get, I get letters into my office um, every day from people around the country, you know, just saying, you know, we wish – the country could be more like Florida. We'd love to be able, you know, to, to, to see you run sometimes. At the same time, you know, I've got a wife that, that's, that's uh, you know, successfully battling breast cancer. I've got a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and I've got a, the, the best state in the country right now to do. So I have my hands full, so I spend really zero time thinking about it except when people come up to me. And they're all very well-intentioned. I mean, they all really, you know, mean well. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's really neither here nor there for me. Last political question before a quick lightning round on non-political stuff. You have a constituent in Florida. He lives, I believe, in Palm Beach. Uh, people have heard of him. He was the president for a while there for four years. He's been hinting very heavily that he wants to run again. If he were to run again, should he be a heavy front runner for the Republicans by virtue of his previous position, or should it be a wide open field? Well, look, I, I, I saw some news that he made a hole-in-one the other day at yes. his course, so I just want to congratulate him. Yeah, I've been able he to was play, very excited about it. I've been it. able to play golf with him over the years, and, you know, he's got a very good game, and, and he's a good player. And so, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, you know we'll, we'll, we'll see kind of how, how, all the, how all the dust settles on this. What I tell people, you know, with me in Florida is, um, you know, I plan on being the nominee. Our, our filing hasn't happened yet. 
and I think I've earned it. But you know what? I mean, if someone wants to run against me, they can. I mean, I have to earn it every step of the way. I've got to in the earn, primary here. I've got to earn it, and then I've got to earn the general election. That's just the reality. Although the Republican Party of Florida did inf- officially endorse me, I don't know what that means, but um, <laughs> I think someone could still run, but hopefully they won't run. So, um, but um, sounds but, like one step at a time is the answer. Here. Yeah, I think so. All right, rapid fire stuff. A lot of Floridians in a certain area of your state were probably pretty thrilled and shocked when Tom Brady unannounced, right? He's like, never mind, I'm coming back. You a Brady guy? You excited to have him back with the Bucks? 100%. So I, I grew up in that area, and I was a fan when they had the orange uniforms and when they used to have losing records year after year. You know, when Tony Dungy came on, he built a championship team. John Gruden took him over the hump, and they won the Super Bowl. But it's been rough sledding uh, throughout last decade until Tom came, and that was a huge thing. And I think – I think you know, he won the Super Bowl the first year, which was incredible. And if you look back at last year, I think he viewed it as probably his last year. But think about it. Had they beat the Rams, they would have probably beat the 49ers and the Bengals. I really believe that. I think they would have won two, back-to-back. And they were banged up. And yet he had one of the best years, not only of his career, but of really any yeah, quarterback. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And so I think it was kind of the natural end of the career. But then I think he started thinking, you know, we should have won the Super Bowl. We can do it. If we get healthy, we add some stuff. So I was thrilled when it happened. I was sad when, when um, they, they lost. I was sad when he retired. Uh, but, you know, he, he's the best uh, football player of all time. And he's the best, probably the best team sport player of all times. I never thought I would see someone better than Michael Jordan. But if you think about it, with what Brady's been able to do by winning all those Super Bowls and to perform that way at that age, and, and football's tough. I mean, like, this is a tough sport. He's really head and shoulders above everybody. People often see you as kind of this political gladiator. You're out there doing stuff. You're out there taking like 60 minutes to the cleaners. And, you know, every day it's sort of relentless. What do you do to unwind that people might not know about? Chase my kids around. So I've got a five-year-old daughter, a four-year-old son, a two-year-old daughter. My two oldest, they love sports. My son loves golf and baseball. They love to swim. And so if I'm home on the weekend, I'm not really resting. I'm not really getting any rest. But it's like we're doing things, and it's probably been – you can look at your life before you were a parent after a parent. There's a clear divide. And so, you know, we're very fortunate. We're the youngest family that's been in this governor's mansion since the 1800s. And I'm, I think I'm still the youngest governor in the country right now, but we haven't had young kids like this to have a, a big young family here. So it's interesting. People see me out there doing this. And then if they were only here, seeing me like chase them around there and doing all this stuff. But that's what we do. Baseball gear out front. That's right. Oh, yeah. No, we set them right up in front of the governor's mansion. They'll hit off the tee and then we'll pick up the balls and then we'll do that. And so it's so it's a lot of fun. You can pick one or both of these questions. What is the best book you've read in the last year? And what is a guilty pleasure TV show that you like to binge? You know, it's interesting. I mean, um, I started watching Yellowstone uh, over the um, over the Christmas holiday and I think, I, mean, I think it's a good show. Part of it, I mean, Montana is beautiful. I'm just thinking, like, my wife's watching that. She's like, oh, man, we need to go to Montana. So that's fun um, for that. But, um, you know, the, what I try to do in terms of reading books is, you know, I try to just go back and read some of the things that are, that are really epic in history. I mean, I know there's new books that come out. And I read, I read Molly Hemingway did a good job on the election. And there's some other good ones I've read. Um, but, you know, you can pick up something like The Art of War. You can read that in one sitting. I mean, it's a pretty 
pretty small thing. You know, you can read some of these things that, that have really been, and there's a lot of wisdom in there. And so I go back and, and I will do that. And, um, you know, I'm, I read, the, I read, I'll read some Federalist essays. I'll do things like that because I think it gets your mind going in a very sharp way. And, um, and so you really are a constitutionalist nerd, aren't you? He's like, I just want to kick back and read the Federalist papers. Well, it's, it's timely. And I think if you look at how they, uh, uh, dealt with some of these issues, you find out human nature has not changed. Okay. These are perennial issues about self-government, about liberty. And as we see these different storms in our time, uh, the underlying principles, uh, that they articulated are just as applicable, uh, today uh, as they were then. Yes. The, 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 window dressing looks a little bit different because society's changed. Uh, but, but those insights are very strong. Last, certainly not least, you mentioned her earlier, the first lady, a scare with breast cancer, some really exciting news in the last few weeks. How is she? How has this been for your family? So she's officially cancer-free. Now, she's still got to go through some of the radiation and stuff, but that's much easier than the chemotherapy was. And so she's doing really well. She's responding really well. And But I think what it just shows for all the women out there, you know, when this, when you get that diagnosis, it's very, very scary because, you know, your life, you know, theoretically is hanging in the balance. But I can tell you this, you will, you have a great chance to beat this. Hang in there, fight the fight. They do great things nowadays in terms of the medical. And I think she's an example of that, um, that, that you can get through this. And so I'm really proud of how she's handled it. It is not easy dealing with in any time. But to have three little kids and then be in the public eye like she is, um, you know, it, it really was um, uh, it really was a difficult uh, time. But, but she's handled it well. And uh, she will be back full strength very, very soon. So stay tuned. Governor, thanks for inviting me into your state and into your home. This was really cool. Looking forward to chatting again. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Back with an abbreviated home stretch on The Guy Benson Show. We are in Florida, the capital city here in this state, Tallahassee. We just wrapped up that lengthy and wide-ranging interview with the governor here, Ron DeSantis, a Republican, and we just sat at his desk for more than half an hour. And I was very pleased to bring you really an array of questions and answers from someone that we've talked about so much here on the show, finally got a chance to spend some time with him. And I hope that you found that interview elucidating, illuminating, informative, and maybe entertaining at times. I really enjoyed it. And if you missed any of it, you can go get it on the free podcast. The entire show, every day, on demand, totally free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we don't have a ton of time here at the end of the show because we went so long with the governor, who is very generous with his time today. But I do want to bring in Curious Christine here in the home stretch because she has been dying to ask all sorts of questions about today and this meeting. So, Christine, what are you most curious about now that you've heard the interview? Um, did you give him my my new Twitter handle? You know, it slipped my mind at Cookies Jar 1988. I probably should maybe I should like write a little note and have left it on his desk and he could immediately follow you. <laughs> I have to say, guy. That interview was unbelievable. You did, and you know me, I'm not one to often give many, many compliments, but you did such an amazing job, and he is such an impressive governor, and you could tell he means business. Now, were you nervous uh, when he was walking in? Did you did you feel pressure, or did you just think, okay, I mean, I'm Guy Benson. Here I go. 
Um, I definitely a little bit of nervous energy. I'd done my preparation. I thought a lot about the interview on the plane and the flight down here yesterday. And, yeah, it's, I mean, the fact that the governor's invited you to his house to chat for 30 minutes about basically anything you want to. It's going to be on national radio. I wanted to do a good job. As I've mentioned now a few times, we talk about him, his policies, his controversies, his enemies a lot on this show. We've never had him on. I've only met him once before very briefly. This was obviously a much longer opportunity to sit with him. And actually tonight I'll be at a dinner off the record with him and a number of other people from the media, right-leaning folks. So we can maybe touch on that tomorrow, although the substance of the conversation tonight will be off the record as opposed to what we just all heard, which was on the record with Governor DeSantis. Not too nervous. He did walk in and shake my hand, and he looked around. He's like, are you just by yourself? You're like a one-man band in your equipment? And I said, yeah, it's just me. And he was expecting a producer. I had to explain, yeah, she's in New York. It's probably for the best. That's another thing. I mean, don't you think it would have it would have been great if I was there just to get to – you think he would have chilled with me for a little bit, hung out? Talk, I'm not sure he does shop? a lot of chilling, period. Like, he is scheduled chock-a-block. And he had an event right before our interview. There was a press conference. He had people waiting for him when he left. He's got this dinner tonight. And I'd bet a few other things in between. He is no nonsense. It is just go, go, go with Governor DeSantis here in Florida. We got a little bit of a taste of that here on the program today. Back tomorrow from Tallahassee. No DeSantis on the show tomorrow, but we'll have a great one as usual. Same time, same place. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you then. It is The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Well, we're doing something a little bit different for the show here in our final hour. We have certain patterns that we get into, and they're good, but I like to break the mold occasionally. And this hour is going to be unlike really any hour we've ever done here on the show. I have in studio here in D.C. Laura Osnes and her husband, Nate Johnson, who I met for the first time at a wedding in Nashville a few months ago. Some of our friends were getting married. Adam and I were down there, and we were at one of the bars, I think, upstairs in the venue. And I was introduced to this couple, and they were nice looking and seemed very pleasant and then i was told they had quite a story and quite a background and that is absolutely true so laura has been for a big part of her career a huge broadway star she's been in movies she won and i did not know this until i did more research for the show today her big breakthrough was winning nbc's reality tv show the competition greece you're the one that I want. And then she starred on Broadway in Greece as Sandy, I believe. That's correct. Yes, indeed. And that just launched you into the stratosphere. You were in multiple shows on Broadway, two-time Tony Award nominee, and all these accolades. 
And you might be wondering at home, okay, that's interesting. They have some new friends who have been very accomplished in their lives. Why is this on the radio show? Let me just tease this. The entire career, the friend quote-unquote network, all the professional connections disappeared within the last few years because of COVID and a decision that they made on vaccines. And it went from toast of the town to literally out of town. And that whole story to me is absolutely fascinating. It's very frustrating, I think, especially given all we know now, scientifically. But I think it's also just an interesting human story as well. So, Laura, Nate, it's so great to see you again. It's great Hi. to be here. Hi. Thank you for having us. I'm over here just nodding. Yes, you're, you're like, that's all correct. Right. Yes. So, <laughs> you have said nothing wrong so far. Yes. So let's just start with this. And feel free to boast or if you need your husband to brag more about you. <laughs> I'm good at that. Like, you were a bona fide Broadway star for years. How did that come to be? I know I mentioned you won the NBC show, but you've been on stage before. You both have really good singing voices. How did you sort of begin that path to stardom? Yes. Well, thank you. Um, I came out of the womb, I think, singing, dancing, and acting. And it's something I always had my heart set on. When I was five years old, I sang Castle on a Cloud from Les Mis, if yep. anyone happens to know that musical. if any, Even if you're not musical, most people know that one. Young Cosette. Yes, exactly. Very good. <laughs> I sang that at my kindergarten talent show. Um, I started taking voice lessons when I was eight or nine and dance lessons when I was five or six. And I did my first show in second grade. I played a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz at Community Theater. And it's something my heart was always set on and it was a, a something that always brought me so much joy I think my parents saw that I had a gift for it and really encouraged me in that direction and um, even when I was little I remember saying I want to be a Broadway actress when I grow up um, and I'm so grateful that I got to do it but it was really kind of what I feel like I was put on the planet to do born to sing and dance and act on a stage specifically it brought me so much joy and uh, the kind of icing on the cake is getting to affect an audience right and and really make people happy or entertain them or challenge them to think differently or inspire the next generation uh, to do the same thing that I did. Well, I have to admit that after we met and after the wedding, Adam and I went back to our friend Brad Thor's house where we were <laughs> yes, staying, yes. and I had had a few drinks we at the all wedding, had. perhaps. Yes. <laughs> and I was in bed, and I got on YouTube and just went down the rabbit hole on your performances. <laughs> I'm like, yep, she's really good. This Aww. is It all makes sense. It makes sense that she made it, right? And before we go any further, I have to ask this question. I already know the answer, but the audience needs to hear this. It is maybe the cutest story I've ever heard in my life about how a couple met and kissed for oh, the did first you time. Okay. Yes. You guys told me, and my jaw dropped because it's just, like, beyond adorable. So maybe, Nate, how did that happen? Yes. Yeah, we, so I had graduated college, and uh, we were doing a show together. Laura this is was, back in Minnesota. We're both yep. from Minnesota. And we were both understudying the leads. And I had a crush on this girl, but... You know, first met her. She had a boyfriend. I'm respectful. Waited for that to finish up. And um, and then there was one night. It was probably show number 93 or so. And uh, the leads collided on stage in the first scene. And like physically collided. Physically collided. His tooth hit her in the forehead. And all of a sudden, I mean, we've got blood. We've got a missing tooth. They stop the show. The god Mike comes on and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to. We're going to take a brief break and a 30-minute break, come back. And so they tried to clean up everything. We jumped into those costumes and 
I mean, we did the rest of the show together. We flew them on the magic carpet, and because it was Aladdin, it was a it was a so production of Aladdin. You were Aladdin seventeen years ago, and yes. you were Jasmine. <laughs> yes, and I mean, yes. This is radio, so people can't see. With all respect, <laughs> yeah, y'all are very white. Yeah, yes, we're both Norwegian. That was the lies. Norwegian. Uh, it was it was Aladdin. years ago, and in Minnesota. And actually, the two the two actual leads were very ethnically correct, and they were amazing. Yeah. Um, so we, but there we was the blood, covers. and they were like. Quick, like, go to the bullpen. Right. We got to bring in the relief pitchers. There was actually, like, a little stain of blood on the dress I was getting into. Because this is regional theater. I don't have my own understudy costume. We're literally getting in their costumes. <laughs> and did, yeah, did the rest of the show. And and then during the show, Aladdin and Jasmine kiss. Right. And that was your first that kiss. That was our first yes. kiss, yes. They actually get married at the end of the show, like, in a, my little, like, two-piece Jasmine outfit. We're coming down the aisles of the theater. And, yeah, our first kiss was on stage. Everybody's singing A Whole New World and Rose Petals Falling. I had a moment, too, where I was I was watching her come down the aisle in that little uh, two-piece two wedding, wedding dress. And I thought... Man, is this foreshadowing? Because I really liked this girl. About two weeks later, one week later, we were dating officially. Yeah, wow. Days. Yeah, a few days. days. Yeah. And then how long after that before you were married? On our one-year anniversary, I proposed. And uh, that was actually in the middle of the Greece uh, competition that was happening out in L.A. Mm -hmm. She had come back for a couple months' time and uh, popped the question, and she said yes. And oh, here how we are. exciting. And by the way, we could go down a whole rabbit hole on Greece as well. Oh, yeah. sure, yes. And Olivia Newton-John passing away recently. I and some know. of those epic, famous songs. She was a judge on the reality show, so I got to meet her. And then she also oh. came to see the Broadway show as well. And how she cool. signed my get dressing room guest book. And she said, from one Sandy to another, Olivia Newton-John, which I will always have. That is something I would treasure yes. if I were in your shoes. So now, flash forward, you're well past Minnesota Regional Theater. You're on Broadway as I mentioned, two Tony nominations. What were they for? They were for a musical um, called Bonnie and Clyde. I played Bonnie Parker and got to be an outlaw. And then for Cinderella, playing Cinderella um, in Rodgers and Hammerstein's very famous musical. You probably know like the Brandy movie or maybe Leslie Ann Warren. Um, it originated as a movie with Julie Andrews. And this was the first time it had been expanded into a full-length musical on Broadway. So you have played Jasmine. You have played yeah. Cinderella. There's a whole production that you've been involved with in terms of Disney princesses across the board. And just for the audience, we will probably delve into that with some musical performances later this hour. I can't wait. I think it's the first singing for real. We've had Cookie and C. Diddy and some quote-unquote music on this show. But this will be, I think, the first bona fide musical performance on The Guy Benson Show coming up a little bit later I'm so on. so honored. But you're kind of flying high at this point. Everything's going well. You're at the Kennedy you know, awards Kennedy ceremony Center honors, yes. Here in DC. On the artist committee and performed several times, yeah. So it's all going incredibly well. Is it at this point sort of like you're living literally the dream? Yes. I was I mean, so blessed to have so much favor in in my career. Got to do six Broadway shows leading the companies, um, which was such a gift. Yes, my dream come true from when I was at, when I was young. And in the meantime I was doing concerts. I started doing concerts and singing with symphonies and doing cabaret gigs, traveling across the country and um I made a couple albums. Um, and yeah, was very, very grateful to get to do what I loved. And I think we thought we were like New Yorkers for life. Yeah. When did you move to New York? Where were you living in New York? You had a whole social scene, right? Sort of. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. We, we lived moved there in 2007. Right, right after. Yeah, we went on a week-long honeymoon to Mexico and then packed a U-Haul and drove to New York and moved into an apartment on 42nd Street in, like, in Times Square. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that was quite the building. We had Fantasia Barino in that building and Sarah, Sarah Brightman was in that building. It was just such a funny. You know those people. It was yeah. such an interesting New York experience. You're just like, where are we? Because so few people live right. in Times Square. Right. Yes. Exactly. And but there's a did. reason for that. Yeah, there we, is. With all due respect. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and then we got up to uh, a different neighborhood where there was more strollers and a little bit more families. and Closer and to Central Park, some greenery. Normal life was happening, right? So you guys at this point have all these opportunities, parties, shows. You were living that life. And then, like it was for the rest of us, the pandemic arrived, hugely disruptive in every way. For sure. And then things got especially strange for you guys because of the vaccines and because of the community that you were involved in and everything that we were just talking about just kind of evaporated almost overnight. I want to talk about that next. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. I'm here with Laura Osnes and Nate Johnson, her husband, and they are both actors and singers extraordinaire. Laura, (laughs) a huge star on Broadway. And when we left off, we were talking about kind of how much you had broken through and were living your childhood dream in New York. You guys are married, deeply enmeshed in the Broadway scene. And then COVID hit. Of course, Broadway shut down for a long period of time. Yes. There was a lot of anxiety across many segments of our economy. People not really sure if they could make a living. It was a Absolutely. highly stressful time for many. Then finally the vaccine arrived. And we were told that this was our ticket back to normalcy. And my position, just so you know, here on the show was pro-vaccine, anti-mandate. So I got the vaccine. I encouraged my parents and family and friends to get the vaccine. We talked about that. We had doctors on the show and all of that. But I also felt like some of the mandates were a little over the top and very coercive. And we seemed to get into, like, really intense culture war-type standoffs over some of this stuff. Right. And you guys were in the crosshairs right in the crossfire of one of these culture wars on broadway in short how did this happen and how quickly did this happen sure um i had been offered a one-night concert i was getting paid a couple hundred dollars to do on long island and um suddenly the venue changed its policy to mandate the vaccine and so the director reached out to everybody privately and this was 2021 yes summer of 2021 august of 2021 and um, I was honest with her and I said, I'm not currently vaccinated. That was right. That was before most mandates were put in place and before like m- most other people had been like called out for being unvaccinated. Like it wasn't a thing yet. Like mandates weren't really in place. But this this venue was mandating. And I was honest with the director. I said, I'm not yet currently vaccinated. And I was willing to give up this, you know, little one night gig to just wait a little longer, find out a little bit more. We were just in a place where we weren't feeling quite um, at peace about moving forward with getting it. I'm not anti-vax. I never took a stance on it or any sort of public stand. I was just like, oh, I just, I will quietly back out and just wait a little longer. And a week later, there was an article in the New York Post saying that I was fired for refusing to be vaccinated. And the article had a series of untruths about how 
the events went down, saying that my co-star begged me to get vaccinated for the sake of his children. Um, he has one child, by the way. He has one child. <laughs> and that, like, it, it, it used words like spies on the inside, blah, 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 blah. Like, it was – and just kind of defamed me overnight and attacked my character. Someone leaked this, obviously, mm-hmm. to hurt you. And to shame you. That is what it seems. Why else do you do that? Yeah, no, that's obviously (laughs) what happened. And you can sort of try to figure out who did it and why and what the motives were. But the fact is it happened. Yes. Then what? Because this is like a one minor gig, one-off thing. Oh, yeah. And then it exploded into like the whole career being threatened, really. Exactly. Randomly, this article hit like wildfire. And every outlet picked it up and made an example and took these untruths and ran with them. We ha- we hadn't even started rehearsal yet. you know. The, and then the narrative became that I had lied or that I was vague, that I was vague about my status. Which and people I had... ran with that idea that, oh, you lied about your status, which was not true. Not true. I, in fact, I was truthful and felt like I was being punished for actually telling the truth. And my privacy was completely breached. And it was done in such a demonizing way that, yeah, the and the, the industry is clearly very one-sided on this issue. And there was no acceptance. Well, on many issues. Yeah. Truth. Um, there was no uh, ability to have a conversation or understand a differing perspective. I actually decided to craft a response, uh, which I posted five days later, saying... Everybody should have the right to choose what they want to do. I'm making the choice that is right for me in this moment. And in an effort to kind of correct how the events of of what happened went down, and it only made things worse. Um, and so now, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of true colors of people within the industry, and I have no desire to return to that. So because that's, it's, I, I really want to get into that because that's another sort of fascinating part of social shaming and people being ostracized and – Overnight, just night and day. After 15 years of a career of friends and a reputation and a lifestyle that we had built there. Did this make you, Nate, angry watching what was happening to your wife? Yeah, I was furious. Um, I think especially when there's something that's untrue being said about your partner. Um, and I, one of the things that I look at Laura, and she has worked so hard to develop uh, you know, reputation, character, uh, that is – completely blameless. And so for her to the the narrative to be out there that she had lied about it or that she had, you know, somehow put her her co-stars at risk was just so frustrating. You just want to make it right. Unfortunately, there's at some point you there's there's only so much you can do because nobody wants to hear it. Some of it and and I I want to continue this. Some of it is probably there are some bad malicious people. Sure. And then there were also probably some scared selfish people who kind of wanted to stand up for you but didn't know how and didn't want to have happen to them what was happening to you because it's it's pretty cutthroat industry right people look at it through a zero-sum prism some of the time and it's like all right well that's not good i'm sorry it's happening to them but i don't want that to be me but still when you're the other person it doesn't matter what their motive is it still sucks for you where people not reaching out, not returning phone calls. Did opportunities just dry up? What were you experiencing? Yes, all of that. Like, it's so well said because there were people that reached out in an effort to go, like, I care. But most of them made a point to say, I don't agree with you, but just want to check in. Like, everyone had to say how they couldn't, they didn't support me, but they loved me enough to care. But I think the fact, the thing that was so hard was that no one seemed to be able to publicly defend me. So it it just, yeah, they let me burn in the fire and and let it crash. Um, 
Which was, oh, yeah, which was very hurtful. And it's I know- not just a career and work and money, and that, that all matters a ton, sure. but also just personal relationships. I work, yeah, I work very hard to establish a good reputation. And we, you know, I felt like my calling was to love my community and my people in New York, which, you know, we tried to do for 15 years. And then I, I respect anybody's opinion, too. Like, I'm like, great, get vaccinated. I, I have no judgment toward, any, toward anybody for making the decision they felt they needed to make but that that kindness was not reciprocated and no one came to my defense and so we just um we we i felt like we had to escape it but we felt like it was no longer safe for us in new york city and so you did to tennessee yeah which is where we all met and then a new chapter in the life in the career began down south we'll talk about that right after this on the guy benson show You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, a very unusual happy hour, but really interesting and fun. Laura Osnes and Nate Johnson are in studio with me here in D.C., both with a theater background. Laura, a huge Broadway star for years. And if you're just joining us, first of all, you have to go back and listen to the first part of this interview on our free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. They were living the life in New York City, and then it emerged somewhat Unfairly, I would say, and with lack of accuracy, that Laura had chosen not to immediately go and get vaccinated against COVID. This turned into a giant sort of scandal and stir within that theater community. And it became pretty clear that you guys achieved almost instantaneously persona non grata status. And at some point, you couldn't even stay in the city anymore because it was over. It just wasn't going to happen. And you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, were sort of out a little bit as conservatives and Christians, which is probably unusual in that group to begin with. Did it feel like this was maybe just like the straw that broke the camel's back a little bit, Nate? Yeah, I think that there was probably a little bit of a target on that on our back for that. I think that there was a there was a moment where, um, you know, memberchange.org was like a yeah. website. You know, I, I remember a while ago, Laura being a part of a concert that somehow was controversial to some people. And, I, and there was a something that went out that you know, try to cancel Laura Austin's type thing, which I, I thought was so wild. And that was years ago. Um, and so when this kind of came up. There was a petition it, to cancel you. Yeah, it, it was <laughs> oh, kind of a wild yeah. time. People really need to get a life. But like, that was petty I, and sort of you were able to get past it. This COVID thing was a backbreaker. Yes, I, I think that is the case. I mean, we're we're very proud of our faith. I, Absolutely. you know what I mean? I'm not I'm not ashamed of that. And I feel like. As far as being conservative, like, I guess I was raised with conservative values. I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Minnesota. And but I was never outspoken about anything. I'm like, I sing and dance and act. It's not my place to tell anybody what to do and how to think or how to vote. But I think, again, because the theater community, specifically New York um, and in that community, everybody is very outspoken. Mm -hmm. So if you if you're not silence is violence became became the mantra. And well, it's it's. Not only the norm, it's also like expected that you be outspoken and very performative, so to speak, about your beliefs among a bunch of performers. So there was maybe some suspicion of you for that reason to begin with. And then obviously it all came to a head. Before we move on to this new part of your career and your life together in Tennessee, before you left New York City, did you ever have a moment where you're like, let's just get the stupid shots and move on? Hmm. I think I, I wished it was that easy. Yes, 
I, if I could have avoided this whole thing, I would have been like, absolutely. However, and I, and I crafted this in my response. For me, it came down to three things. When this all happened, I was like, privacy and freedom. I value freedom. And, I, and I, that is willing – I'm willing to fight for that. And so that was something for me that actually made me double down on my stance not to get it when I was attacked in this way and going – is anybody willing to sacrifice anything for a freedom of choice? Secondly, part of it was medical and part of it going, this feels a little bit like an experiment and we don't know any long-term effects. And I just feel like we should wait, you know? And then the third thing for me was just a conviction in my in my heart that just didn't feel peace about it at that point. And also, I feel like by that point, if you had gone and gotten the shots, and again, I got them proudly. I, I thought that was the right decision for me. And we talked to doctors about why here on the show. If you had just said, all right, fine, I'm caving. Here, I got the jab. Here's my photo. It was too late. The The, damage was done. The well was poisoned. (laughs) Yeah. The tribalism had kicked in, and they were going to exact some sort of punishment on you for this episode. Right. So you decided to move. When exactly? How did that decision get made, and how did you choose Tennessee? Well, I think, first off, I had a photography studio in the West, uh, West Chelsea area that uh, really was affected by shutdowns. And, um, and so one of, the, one of the reasons we were looking at other places than New York was because uh, we wanted to be in a place that was not going to lock things down again. If this happens again, how's, how's the city going to res- respond in the mm-hmm. state? And so Tennessee was one of those places that we were – it seemed pretty open um, earlier on, and um, that was one of the spots. We have family. Nate has we family, also have family in, Memphis. in Memphis. Yep. And so I have a business partner in Nashville, and we had been several times going like. But also, it's, it's a music. Yeah, haven. exactly. Oh, yeah. It feels like there's still lots of art and music and creativity, creativity yeah. happening here, but also a piece, a piece that is just so lovely. We live like around the corner from like horse fields, and yet we're 25 minutes from downtown Nashville, and we can, you know, get so many of the same things. And so. Yeah, priorities kind of began to shift. And Nate also has a production company in New Orleans. So we found ourselves kind of having coming to the South a lot anyway to visit family and do other work stuff. And uh, we Nate loves Zillow. So we were you were like always oh, on yeah. Zillow. We ended up Stalking. finding a house, yes, that really felt like the right fit and put in an offer. And then we rescinded the offer out of fear, going like, I'm losing jobs. How are we going to pay for this? And then woke up the next morning again feeling like, I think this is supposed to be our house. And despite the fear, we put in an offer um, and then there was already an offer on it. So then we were like, okay, well, I guess it isn't supposed to happen. And then that offer fell through and we got it. So it feels like the whole thing was just kind of like a miracle. And I would guess you probably have a little bit more space. Oh, yeah. In yes. Tennessee. <laughs> just a couple than in Manhattan. Thousands yes. more. Uh-huh. Square feet. Oh, it's so beautiful. We do love some square footage. We have a dishwasher for the first time in 13 years. Well, congratulations. And Thank you. Disposal. Yes, That's garbage disposal. <laughs> I'm thrilled for you both. Thank Truly you. thrilled. Let's talk about the EP. Because I feel like some of your process of trying to heal from what was a personal and professional trauma has been, of course, to channel it through your music. So you have this sort of short album called On the Other Side. Is it The Other Side or On the Other Side? On the Other Side. Yeah, that's it. And there's the title track, which is beautiful. And actually, let's start with that because it's like a little bit upbeat. It has a little country twang to it, to my ear at least. Let's listen just to a piece of on the other side. She's got it all. She's so in love. She's got the look. She's got the job. She's got it good. Ain't insecure. Must be easier. But on the other side of the world, there's another lonely girl. Probably wishing she could stand here in my shoe. I've been the one searching for more. Jealous of the girl. 
So listening to this song, Laura, I think anyone who lives in the social media age can relate to this, where you look as you scroll on Instagram or whatever at other people's lives, and it's this idealized version of it, and you say, look how perfect that is, and I wish I had this, that, or the other, and then you kind of turn it around and say, someone's feeling that way about you also, and I think that there's something unhealthy about that part of our culture. There's something beautiful and good about it, too. But it can mess with people. For sure. And clearly you've written a song about it. You've performed it. And I think it's it's resonant for a lot of people. Have you gotten Good. feedback like that? Yes, that is exactly it. I was inspired to write it um, based on both my own things. Same thing. Like uh, the things I post, sure, are trying to be my best self. And I get people all the time that are like, oh, like, I wish I could be you. And then I'm like, wait, you have no idea the trouble or the pain that I'm dealing with. Well, I put that same thing on other people going like, oh, their life looks perfect. I wish it could be them. So I uh, I think it's, it is a, a troublesome thing with social media in our society today. And I felt inspired to write about it. And especially in this time in my life, um, that whole idea was really brought to light. There's another song, one track called Bitter, which kind of speaks for itself. You've been through a lot and you decide that you were going to just express some of those emotions through song. Let's listen to part of Bitter. Like a puppet I was strung along In my darkest hour you did me wrong Ooh, and I know when I'm ready to move on I'll move and I'll get over you sing that you needed space and grace you got both of those things in your new home yes and your new state which is pretty cool you also talk about heartbreaking in two a lot of musical lyrics singing about that it's the end of a relationship or something romantic this is obviously about a different sort of heartbreak that you experience is it an exaggeration or not an exaggeration to say that what happened in new york was heartbreaking Oh, for sure. And uh, such a shock. I mean, I hope you've gotten that from listening so far, but it's, it is essentially my, my breakup with New York song. Um, and do you want to li- dedicate the song to anyone in particular? <laughs> you want to do that? No, no, no. It's okay. it's okay. Not today. <laughs> uh, I was trying to get a little bit of good tea. But, you know, there's another song called Great Divide, and that's kind of about the, the loss of friendships and, and the relationships going like, I still love you. I still care about you. But what happened? I don't know whether to feel the pain from the loss of using of losing you or anger over kind of the betrayal that I felt. And so it's, you know, I, I wrote these songs out of a truthful place and that that's where I was at the time. I did feel bitter and I, I, I also had to think about what message I want to put out in the world. I'm a very positive person um, in, in life um, generally. And yeah, but you also have to be honest. That's, that's right. it. That's right. And be and, like, Oh, here I am. My life's great, but there are still some embers. Yes. And it's okay to talk about that. Yes. Bitter was actually at first called Grateful. There was the chorus that was going, despite all these things have happened, I'm choosing to be grateful. And then I, I walked away from that. <laughs> You're like record- that fact check. Yes. Uh- I walked away from that session going like, this is not actually how I feel. And we got back together and reimagined the whole song. 
And I feel like bitter, that's truth. That was my place of truth in that moment. And I feel like so many people have listened to it and gone, it could be about a relationship. It could be about that. Or so many listeners have also been in similar situations that I have and felt the effects of mandates and how how their lives were so gravely affected or their relationships were affected over the issues of the last year that really drove people apart. And people have said, like, with your specificity comes universality. And I'm, I'm thrilled to know that people are also needing this music as much as I have. You also have a new Christmas song, Fell For You, with Chuck Wicks. Yes. It is great. It's fantastic. Very country. <laughs> it's beautiful. I was listening to it earlier. Thanks. People can check all of this out. We have to take a break. Quickly, is there a website? If people want to find this music, find out more about you, where do people go? Yes, I have a website. It's Laura Osnes, my name, O-S-N-E-S dot com. Also, if you follow me on social media, which is also my name, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. You have a huge following. I lost a lot of followers, though, throughout all this. I lost about 30,000 followers on my Instagram, and I'm hoping to reach a new audience of well, people. Well, you that... have a new one in me. Hey, so thanks, we're, guy. we're building back better. <laughs> there we as, go. As the president might say. How about that? <laughs> there we go. When we come back with Laura Osnes and Nate Johnson, as promised, a little Disney sing-along because I can't resist on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. That's the home stretch coming up. You're listening to the best of Guy Benson. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Monday from D.C., GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free on demand. Special report tonight. I'm on the panel. Hope you can tune in. Fox News Channel around quarter to seven Eastern time. With me here in studio, Laura Osnes and her husband, Nate Johnson. And we're going to do a little Disney sing-along. So Laura actually co-created this touring concert series, Disney's Princess, where it was just a bunch of princess songs throughout the, the Disney years and the whole series of very famous many iconic songs and because of everything that we've been talking about this hour she really hasn't been a part of that recently which is such a shame for the audiences because she's so good (laughs) and i'm not even a huge disney person we do have a few people here at the show who are big into disney but some of these songs just bring you back to my childhood and some of the medleys i've seen of you on social media (laughs) on youtube they put a smile on my face. And so I just was hoping you'd be willing to maybe sample a couple songs. I would be honored. Okay. All right. So I put together a little list. Oh, and we'll, amazing. We're going to try to do this like somewhat rapid fire. Got it. So why don't we start with Part of Your World, Little Mermaid? Oh, I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing, walking around on those. What do you call them? Oh. Feet. Yes. That's my contribution, by the way, the singing. All right, so this one I didn't know, but you had mentioned that you love Tangled. Yes. And a song called I See the Light. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Um, And at last I see the light, and it's like the fog has lifted. And at last I see the light, and it's like the sky is new. Very pretty. pretty. That's a new one for me. You have to watch the movie. It's so good. It's one of Disney's best. You I should will, have a viewing party. I, I'm in. Come Great. down to Tennessee. We'll watch Tangle we go. together. You got it. There exactly. Go. What about Colors of the Wind, Pocahontas? Oh, let's see. Um, have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? Or ask the grinning bobcat why he grinned? 
Can you sing with all the voices of the mountain? Can you paint with all the colors of the wind? It's a beautiful song. It is. It's a good one. One of my favorite Disney movies ever. It was the first movie I ever saw in the theater as a little kid living overseas. It was a big deal to go see an American movie living in Hong Kong. Beauty and the Beast, oh. opening number, <gasps> Bell. Oh my gosh, you my kind of look like central casting Bell, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so take it away, Bell. No, Bell was like my childhood favorite too. Let's see. Um, little town, it's a quiet village. Every day, like the one before. Little town, full of little people, waking up to say. Bonjour. 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 <laughs> That's, and it makes sense, because I think we're the same age. So it would make sense that that, that was movie, in, I love Mrs. Potts, and the, you know, tale as old as time. And Joel Lansbury, I mean, uh, legendary. Absolute legend. Okay, Aladdin, guys, you met Babe. during Aladdin. This is your moment. Uh, let's do a little A Whole New World. Okay. A whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. A hundred thousand things breath, to see. I'm like a shooting star. I've come so far. I can't go back to where I a used whole new to be. World. Every turn a surprise. With new fantastic Every point moment of red view. letter. I'll, I'll chase them, them anywhere. There's, There's time to spare. Let me share this whole new world with you. Oh. I like have some goosebumps. It's amazing. It's very like morning, midday. I was like, can I get some reverb on this mic? (laughs) This is just talk radio, ma'am. We are doing our best. Last but not least, can we impose upon you to do a little Let It Go? Oh my gosh. Okay, my favorite part of that song is the bridge. (laughs) Okay, here we go. I I gotta back up. My power flurries through the air into the ground. My soul is spiraling in frozen fractals all around. And one shot crystallizes like an icy blast. I'm never going back. The past is in the past. Let it go. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Uh, This was really fun. Your story is amazing. You guys were such great sports to come in and talk about this. And I know it's not easy because it's been a hard time, but you're coming through the other side of it, which is fun, which is sort of a reference to the to EP. the album, for sure. I feel like it's been a cool season of finding my voice in a whole new way, both uh, musically and artistically, as well as me, Laura, and my backbone and what I want to say and how I want to tell my story. And it's um, there's been so much growth. I feel like there's been um, so much fortitude and strength built from having to go through something hard. And um, I'm excited for people to get to hear it. So thank you. Nate Johnson, Laura Osnes. It's lauraosnes.com. Yes. People can find everything right there. And also you're all over social media. As I mentioned, I'm a new follower as well. Guys, thank you so much. This was great. Thank Guy, you, guys. Thank you. And that's all the time we have today. Same time, same place tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Thank you for listening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.